0: It's the Code St. Luke podcast, where you'll hear interesting topics and people brought together through the Code St. Luke Public Library. The views expressed by the commentators do not necessarily reflect the views of the City of Code St. Luke or the Code St. Luke Public Library. All right, with that out of the way, here is Hershey Dwoskin with in the headlines.
1: Um, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in again to our weekly um, current events uh, session. Um, I wanted this week to circle back to the Middle East that we haven't spoken about in quite a while because quite a lot of interesting things have happened over the week and I'll sort of brush on some of them uh, before getting into um, uh, the main topic of the day. So... um, um, you know, on the um, events of the week, the, the one of the most interesting ones was this uh, attack uh, on an Israeli-owned ship in the Persian Gulf. Um, you know, remember from other times I've said the Persian Gulf is one of the most sensitive, um, uh, one of the most sensitive waterways in the whole world. Uh, where all the ship traffic has to comes, that comes everywhere in the Persian Gulf from Iran, from Kuwait, from Iraq, has to pass through the narrow straits of Hormuz before going out into the Indian Ocean, and those straits really are narrow. Uh, Iran controls one whole half of the Persian Gulf, and the various uh, Arab Gulf states control the other half. Um, The Israeli ship was actually not an oil tanker, which is the most normal traffic that goes in there, but was a car carrier um, carrying uh, car vehicles uh, to Singapore. Um, And uh, somehow in the middle of the night, uh, mines were attached to the outside of the ship that blew up and caused holes in the ship. And, um, you know, of course, the, the damages uh, were severe enough that the ship had to stop for repairs in Abu Dhabi, but not severe enough for the ship to sink. Now, the Iranians have pulled off this, uh, this uh, gambit many times in the past, um, targeting ships from many different flags. The flag, by the way, on this ship was the Bahamian flag, uh, but the owner is an Israeli. Uh, and I, th- I suppose that could be common knowledge if you just wanted to look up on the internet who owns a certain named ship, you could find out. So it, its I would say it's quite likely that this ship was attacked um, because of its Israeli ownership. And it just gives the Israelis another excuse to sort of try to get back at Iran and uh, also gives an excuse to... Um, The United States to, uh, in a way, beef up its military presence in the Persian Gulf. It already has um, destroyers there, it has missile boats there. There have been several confrontations over the years between Iran and the U.S. Uh, In fact, you might remember a time when the uh, Iranians captured some uh, American uh, naval uh, personnel because they supposedly strayed over the boundary. And uh, then they exchanged them for some other uh, hostages that were held uh, by friendly powers. Um, Israel, uh, of course, for Israel, an attack like this is kind of, we'll call it manna from heaven, because um, it gives uh, Mr. Netanyahu a a chance to uh, respond. And respond he did in the normal way, which is not to attack Iran, but to attack Iranian facilities in Syria. And the Iranian facilities in Syria pose the most threat to Israel because um, they are using Syria as a staging point to bring in serious weapons um, and then either to transfer them to the Hezbollah in Lebanon, which is the Shiite militia, or to use them directly in Syria um, uh, to support the Assad regime and to act against Israel from Syria. So um, the Israeli response was quick. Um, long, long, long time ago, Mr. Netanyahu established the principle that if you hit me, I'll hit you back right away. I'm not waiting. And so uh, this is certainly uh, goes with the, um, with the principle that was uh, enunciated. We also have to remember that Israel is three weeks away from an election, a national election. And I will speak about that uh, in the coming weeks, maybe next week. We'll see. Uh, So it sort of gives a boost to Mr. Netanyahu's uh, pledge to be the number one protector of the country and uh, to tell the people of Israel that without him, the country can possibly fall apart. So, you know, um, this attack came at a very uh, convenient time for him. And um, it also lays open the fact that there are such a thing as uh, Israeli ship owners who own big ships who are involved in international trade. Um, You know, some of the biggest shipping lines in the world are actually uh, owned uh, in Europe by by the Maersk Company, one of the biggest ones. Some of the Greek companies are also pretty big. But uh, this one happens to be uh, owned by an Israeli Um, Also, while on the subject of Iran, Iran also came up in the same week, the news also came up uh, this week, that Iran uh, refuses to commit to changes in its nuclear development program. So you might remember that um, uh, four years ago, uh, the world powers, including Russia, China, the US and Europe made a kind of a deal with Iran and it said, well, that if Iran stopped developing uh, the potential to get nuclear weapons and they opened up their research facilities to uh, UN inspectors, then um, in that case, um, Iran would be able to uh, participate in the world economy and uh, there would not be any boycotts of Iranian, uh, you know, uh, business um, enterprises. Uh, When President Trump was elected, he pulled out of that agreement. He put sanctions on Iran. And, um, you know, once those sanctions went on, it was very difficult for Iran to carry on business because a U.S. sanction means that you can't uh, operate in U.S. dollars, even if those dollars are outside of the United States. So, um, You know, it wasn't so much as trying to Trump wasn't so much trying to get Iran sort of to behave itself. He was just trying to show how tough he could be. And indeed, of course, um, Iran reacted like you would expect them to react. And you like anyone would react if you hit if you sort of hit them. You you don't say thank you very much for hitting me and correcting me. You say, you know, I'm going to show you uh, that you have no power over me. So once once they felt they weren't bound by this agreement, since the U.S. pulled out, they went ahead and um, um, let's say, uh, took steps to develop their nuclear capabilities, uh, military capabilities, even faster than uh, they would have ordinarily done. Um, And uh, with President Biden coming into office, he said, well, He's willing to rejoin the Iran accord, the one which limited their uh, nuclear uh, participation. But what he said was that Iran has to first uh, agree to stop all of their um, uh, sort of illegal activities uh, in the nuclear development zone and also to stop their involvement in um, foreign wars around the Middle East. So in other words, it was a question that the United States said was, well, you have to go first, you make the first step, and then we will respond. And Iran says exactly the other way around. First, you take the sanctions off. First, you let all our economy go back to normal, and then we'll stop doing all the things we're doing. So it's a kind of a chicken, uh, you know, chicken egg uh, sort of a dilemma here and a game of chicken and um you know meantime uh, nothing has changed um what's israel's point of view on this well israel regards iran as the as its number one enemy and what it wants is to have an agreement uh, in place where there are no sunset clauses in other words no time limit on how long the agreement lasts. Because the previous one was for 10 years. In other words, Iran would agree for 10 years not to take the steps to develop nuclear weapons, but what happens after the 10 years? So Israel wants no no time limit. Uh, They want no capacity in any way for them to use the nuclear development to produce weapons. They want to dismantle existing military nuclear facilities, which they have. They want inspections to take place anywhere at any time. Uh, They want limited enrichment of uranium so that it never gets to weapons grade. And uh, they want Iran to to eliminate uh, the missiles, which would enable them to deliver nuclear warhead. So although that's the Israeli wish list, and of course, uh, you know, Iran would never agree to in any way. And uh, the uh, Iranian agreement uh, and the United States States have not asked even for all of these uh, steps to be taken. But it just gives you an idea what Israel's mindset is, that they do regard Iran as a serious potential nuclear threat. Um, What about the Iranian involvement Abroad? Well, you know, uh, Iran is involved all over the place in the Middle East, especially in Iraq, where they are supporting the um, sort of uh, more hardline Shia uh, party and the militia that goes along with it. In Syria, where they're supporting Mr. Assad, who is now in his 10th year of a civil war, which has caused the um, deaths of uh, millions of people, which has destroyed the country, which has caused the physical displacement of maybe close to half the population. Uh, Iran is involved in Yemen, it's a very bitter civil war uh, between the Shia Shia, um, militias, which control half of the northern half of the country, and the Sunni army, which controls the southern half of the country. So Iran has been very active in shipping them material, and um, in, in other words, shipping them arms and weapons and things. Um, they uh, uh, also are backers of the Islamic Jihad party in Gaza, and um, you know, which is one of the more of the radical parties in Gaza, and interestingly enough, it's the, it's the instance that um, Iran is backing a kind of a Sunni uh, Muslim uh, power rather than the Shiite Muslim power, which all the other examples I gave you are. They're also peripherally involved in Somalia and in Libya. And so um, all of this they're able to achieve without you know, despite all those sanctions that are being put on them. And um, you know, it it means that it it kind of goes to show us that economic sanctions can only go so far and only do so much. And and, um, you know, sometimes the mindset is, think of this, you know, the mindset is if we make people suffer enough, they will overthrow their governments and pick a government that which we like. And if you think of the examples that, uh, you know, in the world, like Cuba which the sanctions have gone on since 1960 so we're now into the 70th plus year of the uh, sorry the 60th plus year of those sanctions the sanctions in Venezuela haven't resulted in any overturning of government the sanctions in Iran hasn't haven't overturned any of that uh there are sanctions you know uh, against individuals in Russia um, I think uh, sanctions are almost... A step to try to make the country doing it feel better about itself, that it's on the wrong side, than to actually um, oversee change in, in the hostile country. You know, uh, sometimes, as they say, uh, honey works better than vinegar, but politically, vinegar works better than honey. So um, you know, that's the story about the sanctions. Um, the effects, of course, as we also did say that the effects of all these, this hostility toward um, the Iranians and the Iranian hostility toward uh, its uh, Sunni neighbors and the threat that uh, Iran um, poses and its willingness to use force, as we just saw in the Persian Gulf on uh, mining ships and attacking ships. Um it, its willingness to play hardball, we'll say, has pushed the Sunni states of the Persian Gulf closer to each other and, of course, to, uh, to Israel. Because if Israel is Iran's biggest enemy, then, uh, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And um, the Persian Gulf states see Iran as an enemy and Israel is the biggest enemy of Iran. So Israel has become their friend. And uh, all this is due to Iran. If it wasn't for Iran, Israel would never have the uh, relations with uh, the UAE and with Bahrain. And, uh, you know, they're talking with Oman and possibly even Saudi Arabia. And, you know, Donald Trump, notwithstanding, it's the it's the causes in the Middle East of this rapprochement, which is uh, uh, which is Iran's uh, hostility and Not Donald Trump's uh, fancy words. Um, the UAE this week just sent its first ambassador to Israel, uh, so it shows that there's real, um, real uh, change going on. And also this week, um, the Israeli government had formal talks with Oman, uh, the one of the probably most key located nations in the Persian Gulf, because the territory of Oman. Is touching right on the corner of the Persian Gulf, of the Straits of Hormuz, and previously Israel did have some kind of low-level relations with Oman, which uh, you know, which were broken off, um, you know, as a result of events in Gaza. But um, you know, it looks as if these relations may be reestablished at a certain point. Um, also, sticking on the subject of Saudi Arabia. Uh, you might have read that the United States has uh, condemned the killing of Mr. Khashoggi uh, in Istanbul, and Mr. Khashoggi was a, uh, an opponent of the government in Saudi Arabia, an opponent of the, um, he, was in, he was a journalist, uh, and he was opponent of MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. He had a Turkish wife. And uh, he was asked to come into the Saudi embassy in Istanbul to renew his passport. Uh, And when he did that, he left in pieces. So, um, and he was a U.S. resident, not a U.S. citizen, but a U.S. resident. And for that reason, the United States is taking some interest in in this case. I mean, it was always known and assumed that, you know, the prince was guilty of, of ordering this hit. President Trump, of course, didn't care at all about this. He just wanted um, the Saudis as a business partner. And he never pushed them too hard on human rights because human rights are not his thing. But Mr. Biden's uh, priorities are uh, in the field of human rights. And uh, he, uh, upon recommendation of the CIA, who looked into all this, uh, blamed MBS for the um, killing. But uh, MBS is just such a powerful person that uh, President Biden can't risk uh, completely uh, alienating him. And so, um, you know, U.S. put sanctions on the individuals who carried out the hit, but not on um, MBS himself. Uh, I think it's also important to point out that MBS is, is the crown prince, but he's not the king of Saudi Arabia. Uh, the king of Saudi Arabia is uh, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS's father. Um, and he is an 85 or 86 year old uh, sickly uh, king. Um, and one of uh, Salman, of course, is his name. And one of King Salman's kind of beliefs is that Saudi Arabia should not have anything to do with Israel. Um, MBS, however, is much more uh, uh, willing to have relations with Israel, uh, but he does not want to cross his father while his father is still living. Uh, In fact, uh, MBS met with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu in secret in a meeting in um, Saudi Arabia in the northwest uh, corner uh, of the country close to Israel, And Mike Pompeo was at the meeting, so we know it took place. And um, it's not unforeseeable that when King Solomon passes away, that Saudi Arabia will join its neighbors, the United Arab Emirates um, and Bahrain, in uh, recognizing Israel. Uh, Saudi Arabia has already permitted Israeli overflights uh, of that country, meaning, uh, say, a flight that goes from Tel Aviv to India. Pass over Saudi Arabia instead of going all the way around. So um, you know, relationships are are uh, coming around. Also, news in the Middle East this week: um, the Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Abbas just announced elections to take place on May the twenty-second. Now, these, the last elections took place in 2005 for a four-year term. So four and 2005 comes to 2009. There should have been elections in 2009. But guess what? It's 2021. And, um, you know, he was elected for a four-year term, which turned into a 16-year term. So, you know, he quadrupled his money on that, on that bet. Um, it's hard to say exactly why uh, they've announced elections now, but um, they haven't announced elections before, it's not the first time, but they always cancel them for one reason or another. And um, the reasons are usually that um, they can't control the elections enough to pick the winner, that's usually one reason. And there are other reasons as well. Um, you know, it's odd that in the middle of COVID, they finally, after 16 years, announce an election. But uh, Mr. Abbas is getting older and he wants to leave his job. And that's really the prime reason for it, I would say. Um, the uh, difficulty is that Palestine is divided into two parts that don't touch each other. And uh, Mr. Um, Abbas's movement, the Fatah movement, controls the West Bank part uh, called Judea and Samaria in in Hebrew. And the uh, Hamas controls the Gaza uh, Strip, which is not attached to the West Bank. So you have two different parties with two different leaders controlling two different territories and um, you have an election for supposedly a United Parliament. Imagine how tough that's going to be. Interestingly enough, though, that the the prime candidate, in a way, although the candidates haven't been selected yet, the most popular candidate is Mr. Barghouti, who is serving a life term in jail in Israel, actually five life terms, for um, terrorist actions, terrorist activities. But he's the um, scion, we'll call it, of a very large clan uh, in um, in Palestine, the Barghouti clan, one of the biggest ones. Um, and he was a political activist, you know, since he was his youth, since his youth, and uh, very popular. And, uh, you know, if an election were held, they could well elect him as president, but he's sitting in jail. So, you know, it goes to show how dysfunctional that, system uh, that whole system is another complication in these elections are um, uh, is the are the residents of East Jerusalem who are considered to be residents of Israel and who Israel doesn't want them to participate into the Palestine election because they say that where they live is Israel and therefore they're sort of um, you know, not supposed to be election uh, voting in a foreign election, but needless to say, the Palestinian government considers them to be citizens of Palestine, and uh, you know wants them to vote. But physically speaking, they can't set up ballot boxes in Jerusalem because that's part of Israel, and the Israeli government won't allow it. So you're talking about three hundred thousand people here. It's not an insignificant significant number. And um, how will that work out? Nobody knows. Um, Next subject in the news, before I again, this is all kind of, we're just brushing a few little stories around. Um, The Israeli Supreme Court yesterday issued a, I'd say, an earth-shaking decision that has almost no practical effect. And that earth-shaking decision is that Jews who are converted by non-Orthodox rabbis in Israel must be registered as Jews in the population registry. So uh, this um, has very little practical effect. Why? Because there aren't hardly any Jews who, there there aren't hardly any people who are converted to Judaism in Israel by conservative or reform rabbis you know, maybe a handful to a couple of hundred, and that's it. So it's almost nobody. And yet, the decision is momentous because the Orthodox stream of Judaism has 100% control over all the levers of power that the religious um, establishment has. There's a chief rabbinate, which consists of Orthodox rabbis. This chief rabbinate has an enormous budget. This budget is used to um, is used to uh, pay for rabbis in all the different towns and town and town councils and villages in Israel. Uh, the Chief Rabbinate also controls the, the the marriage, divorce, and burial of all Jews in the country. Uh, it also controls the um, the certification of kashrut uh, in uh, in the country. including giving kosher certificates to hotels, to restaurants, to stores, uh, bakeries, etc. So you can well imagine the power that this group has. And the fact that they don't want to give up any of that power to anyone who's not in their club or stream is momentous. Uh, It has always been an ultra-Orthodox parliamentarian who controls the interior ministry. It's the interior ministry that has to register the uh, arrival or the change uh, of status of any uh, person living in Israel. And therefore, the interior minister, who is an out orthodox person, um, is now required to register as Jewish a convert to Judaism done by a non-Orthodox rabbi in Israel. Now, they always were doing this and accepted conversions Uh, abroad of of Jews converted abroad by reform or conservative rabbis. These conversions were accepted for the purpose of allowing um, the convert to move to Israel under the law of return. The law of return allows anyone with at least one Jewish grandparent to move to Israel. So this was not an issue for them, uh, for people coming from abroad. I mean they didn't like it but they they didn't put up a fuss but now that the Supreme Court has uh, issued this uh, decision uh the uh, uh the rabbinical establishment is up in arms to say the least uh when did this case come to the court in the first place the answer is the same answer that this, the the same time that the Palestinians had their last election 2005 so in 2005, there were petitioners who said, look, we were converted by a uh, non-Orthodox rabbi. We don't believe in Orthodox Judaism. Uh, we don't believe in, in that stream of Judaism. Uh, we were converted in Israel by a conservative rabbi, and we want to have our, our status recognized in Israel. Uh, because the rabbinate refused to do it, the interior ministry, I should say, refused to do it, they went to court court, and the court said, okay, look, we rather not make a decision on this. This is a matter for the government to handle, and the government should take steps to uh, regularize these people's status. The government, of course, refused to do this for uh, 16 years. So for that reason, the court finally, by an eight-to-one decision, the court said, okay, that's it. It's enough. You've had enough time. It's enough stalling. Now you have to do it. And uh, so they just made that decision. Um, And it will certainly be an election issue in the um, the upcoming elections. However, as I said, it has almost no practical effect. What would have an effect uh, is to have, uh, to force the rabbinate to recognize these people as Jews in the rabbinate. Um, not to recognize their civil status as Jews uh, in the interior ministry. The big difference because if they are recognized as Jews in the rabbinate, then they are allowed to have a Jewish wedding. At this point, they're not allowed to have a Jewish wedding because they're not recognized um, uh, by the rabbinate as Jews. And only the rabbinate controls marriage, divorce, and burial in Israel. So it's a uh, topic of really... Um, a talk of great interest um, and it's, a, it's just a function of trying to understand how society works in Israel, which we'll get to uh, next time in the um, uh, you know, when I speak about the Israeli political scene prior to the elections on the um, on on March the 23rd. Um, so Let me just check my watch, if you don't mind. What time is it? 2.30? Okay, we have half an hour. So what I wanted to speak about today is another Middle Eastern topic, one which was in the news a while ago, but which has faded a little bit. And that's about Israel's neighbor to the north, Lebanon. So to learn something about Lebanon, about its history, its politics, its society, um, uh, that's sort of my subject of the day. Why is it important? Because um, it is involved intimately in the Israeli civil war, uh, sorry, the Syrian civil war. Um, The Iranians, as I said before, are active in Lebanon in supporting the Hezbollah Shiite militia. Um, um, It's been in the news because of this enormous explosion in the port of Beirut, which uh, killed 200 people and which destroyed vast sections of the city. And it's important because of its um, financial bankruptcy and inability to pay off its debts, uh, meaning that the uh, society suffers tremendously. And uh, of course, people who lend money to Lebanon are also suffering. So these are some of the reasons why Lebanon is uh, worthwhile to look at. And of course, it's Israel's northern neighbor. Now, you know, a long time ago, for those of you who, um, you know, have been following sort of the Israeli scene, uh, it's always been said that Lebanon is going to be the second Arab country to recognize Israel. Why did they say that? Because Lebanon is a small, relatively powerless country, which on its own couldn't make such a uh, daring step as to recognize Israel but would naturally follow any bigger country who did the same. And lo and behold, this never happened. And you may remember, and after the 1967 war, Egypt and Jordan recognized Israel, but Lebanon didn't. And this is a function not of Israeli-Lebanese relations, but of of, um, interior Lebanese politics. And that's the reason why it never happened. So let's learn a little bit about the country. It is Israel's northern neighbor. It's, uh, you know, climate and geography is almost exactly like northern Israel, like the Galilee. It's also on the Mediterranean, has a long Mediterranean coastline, uh, starting from the Israeli border on the south and going up to the Turkish border in the north. And... And when you go away from the coast, you come to two parallel chains of mountains called the the Lebanon Mountains and the anti-Lebanon Mountains. And uh, these mountains then sort of fade into the Syrian um, uh, territory on the east. So Lebanon has three physical neighbors, Turkey on the north and Syria all the way on the east and Israel on the south. Israel, uh, Lebanon is the smallest real country in Asia. So you know, not counting sort of the Persian Gulf, uh, you know, state mini-states uh, like Kuwait or places like that, it's the it's the smallest sort of you know country in Asia. Its population these days is quite high, of seven million. And um, it's, uh, it was considered to be a kind of a middle income country at one point, but the standard of living is dropping daily in the country. Um, The name Lebanon, um, where do you think it comes from? Where, where does that root come from? You know, uh, it comes from the word lbn, the, the, the lbn Leban, Laban, uh, you know what Leban is? It's uh, yogurt, right? Um, and uh, it means white. Lavan in Hebrew means white. and the white comes from the snow on the hills of the Lebanese mountains in the wintertime. So um, you know, just like Israel has Mount Hermon, which part of which is in Lebanon, uh, there snow all over uh, the Lebanese mountains in the wintertime, and they even had a skiing team uh, in the Olympics, uh, you know, on a regular basis. But uh, to go back in history, not to go back, you know, into prehistory, but uh, Lebanon was the headquarters of the Phoenician people, the Phoenician nation. And the Phoenicians were people who established colonies all over the, traded all over the Mediterranean. Established colonies all over the Mediterranean, uh, from Carthage in Tunisia to Cadiz in Spain. Um, The Phoenicians were present for hundreds and hundreds of years, trading, uh, mostly trading uh, products and um, and establishing their, um, their colonies all over the coastline of the Mediterranean. One of the things that the Phoenicians did, which was the most uh, important, was they took their alphabet, which is the same identical alphabet as as ancient Hebrew alphabet. And they spread that alphabet to Greece, uh, which then um, adapted it and then uh, gave it to the Romans, which adapted it. And then it became the Roman alphabet that we use today. So the origin of that alphabet was in Phoenicia, which used the same basic alphabet as the, as, you know, the ancient Israelites did, um, you know, back uh, 2000 BC. So they did that. Um, They, uh, the language they spoke was a Semitic language, which is related to Aramaic, uh, uh, you know, more modern times. And um, their, their um, main cities were Byblos and Sidon and Tyre, cities which still exist today. Um, they um, And Antioch, uh, which is today in Turkey, but just on the Lebanese border. Uh, early Christians came to Lebanon uh, soon after the dispersal from Jerusalem. St. Paul was there. Um, and uh, Lebanon became an important Christian center when one of their uh, saints, Maron was his name, went up into the hills to uh, lead a monastic life. Uh, Remember that until the mid-300s, Christianity was not accepted by the Roman Empire, and the Christians were um, persecuted. And so he went up into the hills to get away from the Romans, and established a kind of a monastic faith. And the name Maronites comes from him, followers of him, St. Maron, who lived uh, in the late 300s. And these people spoke Aramaic. um, And uh, only when the Arabs came in the 600s were the Aramaic-speaking people slowly changing over to Arabic. So the Muslims conquered the... Lebanon, the same time as they conquered Israel in the 600s, but uh, many, many people did not accept Islam, and they, uh, some did, some converted, but many didn't, and they sort of uh, took refuge in the hills and sort of let, you you know, they didn't, um, they didn't uh, uh, accept, uh, you know, either the Arabic language or the Muslim religion. Uh, In the 11th century, the Druze religion was founded, and the Druze religion uh, also found a home in Lebanon, um, in the southern part of the um, mountains. And uh, the the Shia uh, brand of of Islam also found a home in Lebanon, in the eastern part of the country. So it's interesting that whereas in, in so many of the Middle Eastern countries, you have a very strongly predominant religion it could be Sunni Islam in Egypt where once the Shiites lived and the Druze lived also at one point um, you know to uh, Turkey where the Sunnis also took a tremendous uh, control of the country or for example in um, in uh, uh, Iran where the Shiites uh, sort of the country converted to the Shiite brand of, of of Islam in the 1500s, 1600s. um, In Lebanon, there was just a mixture of people, as there were in Syria a bit, and as there were in Iraq also. It was a very multi-confessional area. Not a country, but we'll call it an area. Uh, What's so interesting is that the Crusaders came, as they did to, to Israel itself, from the 1100s to the 1300s. And when the Crusaders arrived, they found the whole Christian community living there, which they didn't really know about. And conversely, the Maronite Christians found the Crusaders. And they sort of established a bond, which was interesting because in the rest of the Middle East, uh, anywhere from Greece to Turkey to Iraq uh, to uh, Armenia to Syria, the Orthodox brand of Christianity took hold. Um, and uh, based on the uh, Eastern Roman Empire, which was located in Constantinople and Istanbul. But in Lebanon, the Maronite Christians uh, formed ties to the Crusaders who were from France, and they uh, maintained their Catholic faith, recognizing the Pope. Uh, as well as another sort of uh, Arabic speaking group who also did the same thing. And so the ties between Catholicism and Lebanon grew stronger because of the 200 year rule of the Crusaders. And uh, that continued to this very day. Um, skipping along to uh, World War One, well, the, the Ottoman Turks took over Um, took over Lebanon and they took over the whole Middle East in the early 1500s and ruled until the end of the First World War. Their strategy was to let each individual group manage their own affairs. So uh, they didn't try to forcibly convert any populations to Sunni Islam. Um, They um, just wanted to run the countries and collect the taxes and You know, more or less allow each community to run its own affairs is what what they do. Um, In the First World War, uh, you know, the Ottomans picked the wrong side. They lost the war and they lost all their territories. And the French took over the mandate for Syria and Lebanon. And the British took over the mandate for Palestine and Iraq. So that's how they divided things up. What the French did was, uh, at first, from 1920 to 1926, uh, what we call Lebanon today and what we call Syria today was one country. And in 1926, they divided Lebanon from Syria. And the reason they did this was because they wanted one Christian majority country in the Middle East that they could firmly rely on. And they didn't trust the Syrians to kind of be friends with the French once going got tough but they trusted the Lebanese to to do that very thing because of the Christian majority in Lebanon at the time. There was a census that was carried out in 1932, and this census showed that more than half of the population was Christian. Uh, So 1932, we're now 90 years later, um, when was the next census carried out in Lebanon after the 1932 census? The answer is never. So there has not been a census in Lebanon since 1932. And the reason for that is very simple, that um, the Christians did not want anybody to know that their numbers had decreased uh, relative to the number of Muslims in the country. So that's why they didn't ever hold a census since then. Now, uh, during the uh, Second World War, The Vichy administration was in power in France, and therefore was in power in French territories, which included uh, Lebanon. And um, what the Vichy did was they allowed the Germans to pass through Lebanon with weapons and arms into Syria in order to attack Iraq and the British facilities in Iraq, the oil facility. For that reason, then, the British retaliated and went into Lebanon. And they invited de Gaulle to come, who is part of the Free French uh, Army, to come to Lebanon, which he did. And he recognized Lebanon's, uh, we'll call it uh, independence um, in 1943 uh, under French supervision. Uh, in 1943, there were elections. Uh, But the government there ended the French mandate unilaterally, and France was not happy about that at all. Uh, They did some little actions, but nothing special. In 1945, Lebanon joined the United Nations, and by definition, once you're an independent country, you can join the UN. And so the French withdrew their troops in 1946, and that was the end of that. Uh, To this day, French is the sort of second official language after Arabic in Lebanon. But uh, like, you know, you know, like elsewhere in the world, English has sort of come up. Um, The Lebanese government in uh, the 1940s established this very unique system of administration. And what they did was, is they counted the number of people who belonged to different religious confessions and divided up jobs according to the confessions. So in other words, the president of the country must always be a Maronite Christian. The prime minister must always be a Sunni Muslim. The speaker of parliament must always be a Shia Muslim and the deputy prime minister must always be a Greek Orthodox uh, uh, Christian. Besides those, every other job in the in the civil service, all the ambassadors, all of the top civil servants, all of their jobs are divided in a similar way according to their confession. And I think there are something like 13 or so registered confessions. You know, there's some smaller Christian groups. Um, There's the Armenian Christians. Uh, uh, There's Baha'i. There's, you know, many different uh, smaller Christian groups. Uh, even the Jews are recognized as an official group in Lebanon, um, but obviously with no political power because they, they don't have the population to support it. So this sort of confessional system acts as a kind of a, we'll call it a freezing or a status quo uh, in the system. And you get a job, you know, in the government, not because of your abilities, but because which sect you belong to. And this has been the case from the beginning of Lebanon till this very day, even though it was supposed to be abolished, but it never was. In 1948, when Israel declared its independence, Lebanon joined the fighting against Israel. Uh, And it actually took part in in some small little actions, uh, nothing special spectacular. There was no border changes. There was no um, Israeli invasion of the country, Uh, but the Lebanese troops did cross the Israeli border and then went back. Um, The main effect of the 1948 war was the refugees who came to Lebanon from what um, what became the state of Israel. So 100,000 refugees came um from their homes in uh, northern israel uh or even on the gaza strip to lebanon they they you know came of course thinking that things would settle down and they would go back but uh, israel never allowed them to go back um they established uh, refugee sort of camps in in uh, the cities of tyre and sidon uh and in uh, in beirut in the southern part of beirut and the United Nations then looked after them, uh, as I had spoken to you about uh, the UNRWA group, the United Nations uh, World uh, Refugee Association. Um, these refugees, which were 100,000 then, are now four to 500,000 now. They don't uh, actually live in sort of camps. They're more like slums of the cities that I mentioned uh, to you before. Uh, at first, they were, not, they were not able to get citizenship, they still cannot get citizenship. But uh, until 2005, there were 70 job uh, classifications that were close to them. Uh, and that was cut down to 20 in, uh, when was it, in 2010. Uh, and so now, except for lawyers, doctors, engineers, and politicians, Pretty well, most other jobs are open to Palestinian refugees, but they cannot own property, and so they were the poorest uh, of all the residents of Lebanon until the Syrian refugees arrived. You know, after 2011, in the uh, Syrian civil war, in 1958. Let's check my time again. In 1958, uh, Nasser. Remember Nasser from Egypt. He wanted to set up the United Arab Republic, and he did, which was a union of actually uh, Egypt, Syria, and Yemen. And many um, many Lebanese Muslims wanted to join that union. But of course, the president was a Christian, and riots broke out. Um, And uh, the president, Shamoun, as his name was, called on the U.S. to send troops in to defend the integrity of the country. And the, the US troops actually did come in until things quietened down. And these were the golden years of Lebanon. So the golden years of Lebanon were actually the 1930s, 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, the Lebanese economy was tremendously successful. Lebanon was a cosmopolitan, relatively liberal Arab state. Uh, it had headquarters of banks, it had headquarters of publishing houses, It was a place where conservative Arabs would come for tourism to go to uh, restaurants with ladies and then go to the beach. Um, Lebanon was the Paris of the Middle East, as it was called. Um, And uh, it had a very middle class uh, existence, ties to the rest of the Arab world and ties to Europe. So it was like a bridge between Europe and the rest of the Arab world. If someone wanted to publish a kind of a risque article in a newspaper and didn't want to risk publishing it in Egypt or in Iraq or Syria, they would publish it in a Lebanese newspaper. Uh, The same thing for Lebanese film stars, Lebanese singers, uh, pop stars. Um, You know, Lebanon was the center of Arab culture uh, in all ways, um, even though the country was a small country of three or four million people. So this was the golden era of Lebanon. Uh, it all came to an end in the 1970s. And what happened in the 1970s was that um, you might remember there was a Palestinian uprising against uh, King Hussein in Jordan, Black September, I think it was called. And um, King Hussein kicked the Palestinian leadership out of Palestine and um, because they tried to overthrow him and they moved to Lebanon with their weapons. And so now all of a sudden, into Lebanon, there appeared uh, Palestinians with weapons, um, and they used these weapons to attack Israel from Lebanon. Israel retaliated uh, several times, and um, the sort of uh, entry of these Palestinians who were Sunni Muslims into Lebanon Upset the delicate balance that existed between the Christians and Muslims up until then. And their weapons added even more to the to the fiery mix, we'll call it. And the Civil War broke out in 1975. Basically, the Civil War was basically between the Christians in Lebanon and the Muslims in Lebanon. Um, This Civil War lasted 16 years from 1970. Five until 1990, and it completely destroyed the country, as you could well imagine. Physically, uh, socially, uh, economically, the country was racked uh, by fighting. Beirut was destroyed. Um, people were kicked out of their houses. Uh, villages were torn apart. It was. It was. It was. It was brutal. Israel invaded the country twice um, to sort of put out the fire of the Palestinians attacking uh, Israel from across the border. Um, There was a massacre in in 1977-78 by PLO who crossed the Lebanese border and attacked buses and massacred uh, all the passengers on the buses. And for that reason, Israel crossed the border uh, into Lebanon and took control of the whole southern part of the country. They withdrew in 1978, but they kept a small strip along the border, uh, which uh, they actually controlled from 1978 up until 2000, when they withdrew. In 1982, during the Civil War, uh, the Prime Minister was assassinated, Mr. Jamayo who was a kind of a friend of Israel. Um, and uh, there was a massacre of Palestinians in retaliation in the uh, Palestinian refugee camps in Southern Beirut, uh, for which the Israelis were sort of blamed, but they didn't do the killing. Uh, the uh, the uh, US Marines had sent in at one point, the contingent who were, who were killed um, in a, an explosion. And all of this sort of bedlam led eventually to an agreement um, in, in 1989 called the Taif Agreement, uh, which was uh, overseen by the Saudis. And it, uh, what the essence of this agreement was, was that the civil war would end. The Syrian occupation, which came in to end the civil war, I, I didn't mention it, but the Syrian army moved in And effectively ended the civil war. That's how it did end. They went right into Beirut and took it over. Uh, And when they went into Beirut, they uh, besides ending the civil war, they stole everything that wasn't nailed down. Um, The economy, therefore, was completely devastated. Uh, The 150,000 people were killed, and a million people were displaced. So it's about a quarter of the population was displaced at the time. Um, All of the militias that existed and there were many militias that existed uh, during the Civil War and took part in the Civil War. So in a certain way, each political party and each sect had their own militia. All these militias were disarmed with one exception. The exception was Hezbollah. And Hezbollah, the Shiite militia was allowed to keep their weapons because Israel um, was considered to still be the enemy on the Southern border and um, Israel controlled kind of a, a 10 kilometer strip wide, 10 kilometer wide strip all the way along the border from the ocean up until uh, the mountains. And so Hezbollah was allowed to keep their weapons so that they could sort of kick the Israelis out. That was the, that was the deal that was made. Uh, and all the fighting that took place, uh, you know, over the 10 years between 1990 and 2000, killed 17,000 civilians in in uh, Lebanon. And Israel at just one point said, you know what, we're fed up. We're losing too many soldiers. It's costing us too much money. And they unilaterally pulled out in 2000. Uh, but uh, the government did not force the Hezbollah to disarm. And they're still not disarmed. Um, when Israel left the country, the Syrians were supposed to leave too, and they didn't. Because they said, hey, you know, look, we're controlling the country. We're, we're, you know, doing it for the benefit of Syria. We're allowing Syrians to move into the country to take jobs. And uh, Lebanon, in essence, was an occupied country by the Syrian military from 1990 up until 2005. What happened in 2005 is the Prime Minister, Rafiq Hariri, was assassinated, another assassination. Mr. Hariri was a billionaire Lebanese uh, businessman from Saudi Arabia. He made his money in the construction business in Saudi Arabia, moved to Lebanon on his own to say, I want to use my money to rebuild the country. And he actually bought almost all of downtown Beirut, which was in ruins, and built it all back up, you know, made new streets, new houses, new electricity. New water uh, supply, new sewage, new everything. He did it all with his own money, and um, because he became such a powerful figure and such a popular figure, he was assassinated. Uh, the by he was assassinated by the uh, Hezbollah, uh, and you know, uh, backed by the Syrians. Of course, they claim that Israel assassinated him, but you know, Israel is blamed for anything that goes wrong anywhere around the Middle East. Um, And a court, by the way, took 15, 16 years to to declare that indeed it was the Hezbollah who who killed him. They they put out, uh, Interpol put out an arrest warrants for a bunch of the guys who did it. A couple of them were caught, but the rest of them were not to this day. So this assassination led to what was called the Cedar Revolution. The cedar tree is the symbol of Lebanon and the people demanded that the Syrian troops leave, which they eventually they did. Um, The United Nations investigated and found that the Syrians were responsible, as I said, with the Hezbollah. Um, And uh, there were uh, in short wars, a couple of them between the Hezbollah and Israel, uh, one of which resulted in tremendous damage to southern Lebanon. The Hezbollah threw thousands and thousands of rockets at Israel, um, and uh, basically uh, uh, that was that was that. The the kind of new status quo is that the Christian community has lost power because they lost population, and the Hezbollah gained power because they also had the weapons and they gained population. So uh, the Syrian civil war, that's a different civil war, that was in Syria, the one that started in 2011, led to a million and a half refugees coming into Lebanon, which only had four and a half million people to start with. And the government had no money to look after these people. Uh, Banks froze deposits. They, They went bankrupt. Uh, the civil wars uh, caused, you know, investment and in tourism to to tank and inflation to go over fifty percent. And the last tragedy that happened to Lebanon was in August the fourth, this past August, when this explosion blew up in the port. It was fertilizer that was being held in non uh, non uh, what, what would you call it non um, secure conditions the fertilizer could be used for to make explosives. And that's why uh, it was kind of left there. Um, And it blew up with uh, destroying uh, a lot of eastern Beirut, which is which was the Christian. The northeastern section was the Christian zone. It destroyed that. It just killed 200 people. And, um, you know, it left the government completely helpless. so uh, as far as, um, uh, yeah, that's about it. Now, let's just talk about the, the the people who live in the country today. It's about 27% Sunni and about 27% Shiite and about 30% uh, Christian altogether and about 5% Jews. Um, the country is, like I said, falling apart. There was a garbage... Uh, We'll call it a garbage pileup in Beirut where they had closed one dump but never opened another one. Electricity is all in private hands. And um, electricity keeps getting turned off because the people who own the lines, you know, ask for more money and the people can't pay it. So there's no one electricity provider in the country; It's dozens and dozens of smaller little companies. So, So that's a mess. It's sort of Texas on a small scale, we'll call it. Um, uh, An an important uh, an important element to mention is that Lebanese, one of the Lebanon's biggest exports, has been people, and people, especially Christian Lebanese, have been leaving Lebanon since the 1800s, going to um, Europe, South America, especially Argentina and Brazil, where there's hundreds of thousands of them. Uh, going to West Africa, to Ivory Coast, where there's over 100,000 uh, Lebanese there, and I, I did met one myself, was really an interesting guy, uh, 30,000 in Senegal, maybe half a million in Canada uh, are Lebanese origin, also to Australia and the Gulf states. And they all send money back to the country, to their relatives, and that money accounts for about $8 billion a year, which is somewhere like 20% of the economy. Um, the, uh, the, you know, the Lebanese government is completely broke. Uh, they could not uh, agree on a prime minister, which they finally did agree on. And the country is like kind of just um, hanging on by the skin of its teeth. Let me just see what time it is, okay. Um, lastly, just to mention that there has been some talk about making relations with Israel now that the other countries have done it around. The Gulf countries, and most of the country wouldn't be in agreement to do that, but not the Shiites, uh, who are the ones who are in have a veto power in the government. Israel and Lebanon have been discussing and negotiating over a sea border where oil and gas um, resources are found, and um, you know they're each trying to make a claim over a certain small triangle of territory. And if they make an agreement on that area, it may lead to an agreement, you know, in other areas as well. So uh, that's kind of an update on Lebanon, on the Middle East. And um, I'm now uh, ready to uh, have any comments, questions as usual. Just tell me what you think. And um, as I said, in the next two weeks, one of the next two weeks, I'll speak about Israeli politics uh, for the upcoming election uh, March 23rd. So, um, you know, tell me if, you, if you've ever been to Lebanon. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's just a, an, an amazing small country which has gone through a lot and, um, you know, whose people have both uh, kind of determination and hopelessness all at the same time. It's a really interesting mixture of determination and hopelessness. Wouldn't it be great if they could open the train, you know, the, the train that goes from Tel Aviv to Haifa, there's a tunnel that goes right through the mountains, which form the border between the mountains, go right down to the sea. And if and there is a tunnel, there's a train tunnel through there that the uh, Ottomans built. And um, of course the tunnel has been closed, but it would be phenomenal to open it. And you could take a train from Haifa to Beirut and have coffee and a French pastry and turn around and come back on the same day. So, uh, you know, that would certainly be a nice, um, uh, a, a nice uh, sort of perk for peace in a way. Uh, what's the story, Angela? Anyone, uh, anyone have a question? I also, you know, I should mention that Lebanon is quite a big food processor and exporter. And if you've been to a Middle Eastern grocery store in Montreal, um, you know, and you look at uh, all different kinds of jams, uh, apricot jams and sherry jams and, uh, um, uh, you know, other Middle Eastern foods, uh, eggplants and things like that, uh, Lebanon is just a very large producer of this Of these things because they have so many small family-owned companies that uh, are involved in it. They're very industrious, very commercial kind of people and uh, very successful, especially when they've left the country to go around the world, just like many other exiled communities in the Middle East, like Greeks or Armenians or Jews or other people like that. you know who've made their way around the world. Uh, the Lebanese community is, you know, you know, in the same mold as these other ones. I don't see any uh, any questions, uh, Mr. Dvorskin. So, do you have any? Okay, so let me let me just remind all of you in case you haven't heard, which I know you have. But if you happen to be, and there might be one few of you who are over 70, you're now eligible to get the vaccine in Montreal. So please um, get it ASAP. I've had mine. Uh, There's no side effects, uh, no questions, uh, except the sooner you get it, the safer you're going to be, you and your family. And the sooner you get it, the sooner you can return to a normal life. Um, and, uh, by returning to a normal life, I don't mean to, you know, uh, go down to bars, which are closed, but at least you don't have to worry about washing your hands every time you touch something. And, um, you know, uh, in that sense, uh, you know, you get together with people who've also been vaccinated and, and the protection is pretty well close to hundred percent for getting severely ill. So please don't hesitate. Please get, vaccinated as soon as you can and the sooner we all do that then the sooner the sort of herd immunity develops and um, then you know our countries can go back to normal so uh, call it's easy I know people have done it have got their appointments already uh, so don't hesitate to do it and um, you know be safe and we'll see you all next week so thanks again for listening
0: Thank you for listening to the Code St. Luke podcast today. We launched the podcast and telephone broadcasting service in March 2020. The idea was to get content from Parks and Recreation and the library into your homes using Zoom, telephone, and podcasts. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, and share it with your friends. For more information about programs at the library, visit csllibrary.org. For information about the City of Code St. Luke, visit codesaintluke.org. Have a great day!